Father, this evening. We just thank you, we just thank you, we just thank you, Father. Through it all, you kept us. You kept us. Your loving kindness kept us. Your goodness towards us kept us. And we are here, the middle of a hot week, in your house. Preserved by the loving hand of a loving Father. This hour we put aside everything else. We just surrender once again spirit, soul and body. And we pray, Lord, speak to us. We have come for life. Your words are life. Your spirit is life. And you are life. Help us to be still, Lord, in your presence. Let there be unction, let there be clarity. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll continue from where we stopped on Sunday. But let's look at a couple of verses before we get into today's message. Jesus talked about the last days. Why we keep reminding ourselves of the last days is not because we are afraid of his coming, but we are excited. But also to know that in this life we are caught in time. So whenever you ask children, okay, exam is just a month away, they look in terms of like there's only 30 days to prepare. We are running out of time, okay? So Jesus talked about the signs of the last days. And in two particular portions, in Matthew and in Luke, he said in Matthew 24, 33, See you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. When you see all these things, then you need to know that it is near. And Luke, he said, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. This is, this is called the, if you want to put it a name, it's called eschatology of convergence. There is even a movie, it's released or going to be released around in the same, same title, I'm not very sure. What does convergence mean? It means, that's not today's message, okay, but just to keep us, our ears perked. When Jesus was asked by the disciple, what are the signs of the last days? He gave us a lot of signs, a lot of signs. And then summing it all up, because these signs have been there always, all these signs have been there. Summing it up in Matthew and 21, he said to the, when you see all these signs coming in together, all the signs mentioned in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 coming together, convergence. Okay? When they're all coming in together, you know his coming is very close. Very, very close. Different signs are given and different signs keep happening separated by time. But when you see all these signs coming, converging at the same point of time, you know his coming is near. Then, if you look at time in the light of last Sunday's message, the goal of God in our redemption is perfection. Then suddenly believers shake up and say, oh my gosh, i got a little time left to get my act ready. 
So in the Old Testament terms, God would call up some people and says, Hey, your time is almost up. Put your house in order. Put your house in order. So read. We read time differently from the rest of the world. When we look at time, we need to realize God has got a goal when he redeemed me in time and in the time left, oh Lord, help me to reach that goal in the power of your spirit. Okay, understand. See time that way. That's why this urgency in the spirit, there's an urgency. <clears throat> Yet, connected with all the signs we also know from all the teachings we have heard, what was the greatest warning of Jesus connected with all the ta- all the signs? The greatest warning was connected with deception. He said, beware of deception. More than all the other outward physical, physical signs, the greatest warning, he said, beware of deception. And there is a deception that is sweeping the church like it has never been. Also, remember, when convergence comes, all the signs start increasing. And in that also, the greatest sign he said to be watchful about, that is a deception will increase. And it is sweeping the church like it has never It's been there from the beginning, but till now, you see it increasing. This is the deception that is affecting the church worldwide like never before. So to understand that, we need to understand what is the call of the gospel? What is the call of the gospel? Because the deception is connected with the gospel. So in, in, when the manifesto of the gospel actually begins in Romans chapter 1, and uh, you want an in-depth study on it, log in and listen to Pastor Vijay's teaching on the book of Romans, but Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a born servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now here the gospel, when the manifesto begins, the gospel is called the gospel of God. Okay, it's given by different names, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace, but here it is called the gospel of God. Which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. All the prophets in the Old Covenant, they knew it and it was prophesied through them about this gospel of God. And he says, I, an apostle, called to be an apostle, a born servant of Jesus Christ, has been separated for this particular gospel. That's why most of the letters are written by him. He makes the gospel to us clear. What is this gospel of God? Okay. Concerning him, this gospel is concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Okay, actually 5 and 6 too. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. That is the call of the gospel. This is the gospel of God. The call of the gospel is to call a set of people to an obedience that comes by faith. An obedience that comes by faith. Okay, remember that is the call of the gospel to everyone who hears. But today we hear a faith with an obedience that is being preached. The spirit of Antichrist has succeeded in introducing the most destructive, devastating heresy that will either take away millions of Christians to hell or rob the others of their crowns. Because of a gospel that is preached which does not talk about obedience. A faith that is preached that never talks about 
obedience. It is called the falsification of grace. Grace is given for that very purpose. It didn't start now. It started from the days of the apostles. And all the epistles, if you study them carefully, were written as warnings to tell us to be on guard. That a gospel that doesn't call us a people to obedience is not a gospel. It's not a good news. So in this manifesto, introduction of the gospel, there are two things that are first declared about Jesus. In verse 3 of Romans 1, verse 3, two things are declared about Jesus. First in verse 3, concerning his son Jesus Christ, this gospel declares. Okay, This is the declaration of the gospel of God. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. The first declaration is this about Jesus. What does it mean? The first declaration is verse 3. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, According to the flesh. What does it mean? First thing, what is he according to the flesh? Verse 3. Second, verse 4. And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. What is he according to the spirit? Two declarations are made. If we change either of this, verse 3 or verse 4, we tamper with the gospel of God. And this is fundamental to your and my salvation. What does it mean? What does verse 3 mean? What does the first declaration mean? What does verse 3 mean? It means first, two things, okay? One, he was born fulfilling scripture. According to the promises given from Abraham till David. According to the flesh. He was born of the seed of David. The first promise given to Abraham. The promise given in the book of Genesis is the seed of the woman. That's, that is common. But when the promise was given to Abraham, a man is separated from him. A, a tribe, a race is separated. So, he was born of the of promise given to Abraham, separated, finally comes down to one family. One man. David, the seed of David. So according to the flesh, he was born in this family. That's the first promise. Second thing, because he was born of the seed of David, in this particular race of Israel, the second promise is, we need to understand, or second declaration or promise is Hebrews 2.14. Inasmuch as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Second thing, declaration is, not only did he come through the family of David, he was born just like any one of us, flesh and blood. Understand that. He was born just like any one of us. He was born in the flesh and blood, he himself shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He came in the flesh, just like all of us, in the same flesh. He was not given a different flesh. He was born in the flesh. Only the family is the family of David, but he was born like all of us, flesh and blood. In the second declaration, that is, he was declared the son of God. How? According to the Spirit, if you go to verse 4, you will see, declare to the Son of God. By whom? 
power according to the spirit of? Okay, remember, this Holy Spirit has many names in the Bible. Many names in the Bible. But here when his Jesus is declared according to the gospel of God, he who was born in the flesh, just like us flesh and blood, was declared to be a son of God, not by the spirit of truth, not by the spirit of grace, but by the spirit of holiness. Okay? By the spirit of holiness. It's a holy spirit. How it was, how is it declared the son of God? By the resurrection from the dead. When he was resurrected from the dead, he is declared as the son of God. We will come into that okay, in detail. So understand this. When he came in the flesh, what does it mean? He came just like all of us. He came just like all of us. Because there is, there is a lot of people who refuse to believe that. They said, no, he didn't come like us. He came as in a body like that, but he was fully God. Fully God. When you say that, then you are saying, Jesus, you don't understand my struggles. Jesus says, I understand all your struggles and I sympathize with you, but I overcame all the struggles you go through because I went through it. Therefore, through me, you can overcome all your struggles. That's what he says, he came in the likeness of our flesh and blood. So in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 6 to 8 says, who being in the form of God, he, he was in the form of God. Not in the form of man. He was in the form of God. He was spirit, not flesh. He did not consider robbery to be equal with God. Not only was his form similar to his father God in spirit, he was also equal in power to the father. Equal. Consider it robbery to be equal. If he said, I'm equal to the father, he was not stealing something from the father. He was actually equal. He was not lying. He was equal. But what did he do? He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, Coming in the likeness of man. He emptied himself of all of that. Of that form. And of that power. He came as a man. In the likeness. Being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Became obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. So he came like us. Though he was like God. He became like us. And Hebrews 2.17. You have to study the book of Hebrews. To understand the work of redemption. Therefore, in all things, say all things, all things, he had to be made like his brother. He had to be made like his brother. In all things, he got tired, he was weary, he fell asleep. Everything, he had to be made like us. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. I cannot be a merciful and a faithful high priest unless I know the weaknesses of my people. Okay. So Jesus had to be made like us so that he could have sympathy, sympathize with us. He was in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. What does it mean? Because you need to understand, if you read the book of Job, you will understand it. God says, I'm giving a level playing ground. Remember the Job's accusation, Satan comes and says, oh big deal. Job, you're saying he's a righteous man, big deal. If anybody is blessed like him and put a hedge around him, anybody will be righteous. God says, really? Okay, take the hedge off. Take everything away and you will see he will be still righteous. Okay. The same manner there is an accuser of the brother. If Jesus came 
with a different body, with resistant to all temptations and no struggles like us. And then he overcomes. The devil will say, big deal. Anybody can do that. Big deal. There's nothing great about it. God says, no. He will come in the likeness of man. He will be made exactly like any man who was born of woman. And he will be allowed to be tempted in all points. And that's only when overcoming will come. He came in flesh and blood like all of us. What is this flesh? He came in. What does Paul or the scripture talk about? The flesh in which Jesus came in. Romans 7, 18. There is in my flesh nothing good. Jesus came in the same flesh in our likeness in which there was nothing good. There was nothing good in his flesh. There was nothing good in our flesh. Okay, same flesh is coming. Nothing good in the flesh. Jesus came in. Jesus knew it. There was nothing good in his flesh. Romans 8 verses 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded, KJV will say, fleshly minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and Peace. He knows it very well. Jesus came in the flesh in which there is no good and he knows to be fleshly minded is death. And Romans 8.13 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will you will die. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's all scripture that pertained to him also when he came in the flesh. All the scriptures apply to Jesus because he came in the flesh, just like us. Therefore, the writer of the Hebrews gives us that divine revelation of Jesus in the flesh. Hebrews 5, 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from? What death? To be fleshly minded is death. That death. That is his crime. His entire prayer life, the core of was focused on it because he knew to be fleshly minded is death. To be death. That's his crime. In the days of his flesh. And he was heard because of his godly fear from what? That death. He was never carnally minded. He never took one act in the flesh. Therefore, he was saved from that death. In verse 5, and uh, sorry, verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He was a son. Why did he suffer? Why did he suffer? Because every temptation is to give in to your flesh, my flesh, his flesh. Every temptation is aimed at the flesh. No temptation is aimed at the spirit. Every temptation is aimed at the flesh. Will you live for God or will you live for self? Will you put to death or will you allow it to live? And Hebrews 2.18 For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He suffered being tempted. 
He suffered being tempted. You getting the picture? He's suffering in his flesh because of the temptations that are aimed at him. And he knows if he gives in to his flesh, it means death. It means death. And Hebrews 5, 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He is being perfected. God is very true to scripture. Remember, he says, you will never be tempted beyond your strength. He will never be. Meaning, he did not allow his son also to be tempted beyond his age. We know, we know what it means in cricket. You have under 16. Then you have under 19. Many, like Pastor Vijay will say, are perpetually under 19, even when they are 35, just to get into that team. Okay? And then by force they take them to the dentist and check their teeth and find this fellow is no longer 19. He's almost 30 years old and they chuck him out. Okay? After 19, only under 19, you get into the big league. Then you come into T20. It's going on crazy. Then you come into first day, one day. But finally, you have to break into what is called test match. Test match is the test, final test. Can you survive test match five days? Can you survive five-day test match for a year? Can you survive five-day test match for ten years? Consistently. Those, that is what it means. He's being perfected. He's being perfected. He's being perfected. He's being perfected. Look, it's all there in scripture. Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Perfect through sufferings. He was made perfect through suffering. The funny part is that who is he? All things are by him and all things are for him. So that through him many sons will be brought to glory. He who is the captain of their salvation was made perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, I am not getting into that. That's a different tangent altogether. Okay, different tangent altogether. Are we, are you getting the picture? He was perfect. At every level, the test is increasing. For me, he's perfected. His obedience was perfected like we saw on Sunday morning when he's on the cross. On the cross, when he's nailed, Betrayed, abandoned by everybody. Mocked by everybody. Including the thieves on both sides. He still will not give in to his flesh and speak one word outside God's will. He will not. That's a final test. Come down! If you are the son of God, come down. What? You won't say anything. Yet when he opens his mouth, every word is a blessing. Every word is a blessing. It is not enough to hold your teeth tightly and say, I will not respond. That still doesn't make anyone perfect. The real perfection comes when out of your heart you still open your mouth and blesses those who curse you. So perfection, he is reaching his peak over there. And he's in enormous agony in the flesh, in the body. 
where every every nerve is crying out for pain and for revenge. And you have the power to take revenge if you want. And he doesn't. Okay, that's what perfection is talking about of his character. So what is the great deception of the enemy? Twofold deception of the enemy. One, he deceives the whole humanity. Okay? In Romans 3, 22 to 24, God has said, <coughs> wages of sin is even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. All of humanity has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, you are justified freely by His grace through redemption. That is in Christ Jesus. God offers free redemption to everyone who believes. The first deception of the devil is works because much of the world will not receive it. Because they will try to work their own righteousness without accepting the righteousness of Christ which is a free gift. That is called religion. Or another group become atheists. Why do people become atheists? Because then you can deny the existence of God and if there is no God, there is no sin. Okay, There is no God, there is no Sin. Atheists also have an agenda. When there is no God, there is no sin. If you say there is God, then there is guilt. When you say there is no God, there is no sin. So the first deception of the enemy is to deceive a whole chunk of people who will either try to work out their own salvation through different forms of religion or will become atheists. The second deception that happens within the church. To the ones who accept the way of, way God has shown, that is Jesus, there is another deception at work. And it is most seen in the last days. If you notice, the serpent tempted Eve with a glory that she could gain by disobedience. But the result was death. He said, if you disobey, he won't say if you disobey God. He will say if you eat of it. But that's exactly what God said, don't eat. If you eat, you will die. He says, if you eat, actually you will become like God. You will have the glory similar to that of God. But the result was death. When Jesus came, you need to understand, Jesus came with death first. Death to self. Therefore, death to the desires of flesh. Alive only to the will of God. Okay, He came how? With death. Death to self. That is why scripture records in Hebrews 10 verses 5 to 7. Therefore when he came into the world, he said, he said, and he came into the world, he said, we don't know. Maybe that we don't, we measure everything in time. So we'll ask, when did he say that? Angels don't ask it because they don't have time. So whenever he slipped from timeless eternity into our time, somewhere there he said this. I don't know how it happened. Before that spirit being became an embryo, he said it. Okay, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written. What did I say? To do your will. Oh God. When he said that, he came with death. What does it mean? Death to Self. Die to himself. I have come to do your will. Come. Verses 5 and 6. If you look at verses 5 and 6, 
When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifice of sin. He had no pleasure. Five and six alone is not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. Because you could still deny your self-will and obey somebody else who is not God still doesn't become the will of God. Okay, Deny yourself will. And obey somebody else. That's exactly what Joseph is being tempted to. Joseph is being tempted by Potiphar's wife. And he could deny himself. Say, yeah, my father taught me all these things are wrong. But I have, I shouldn't be doing it. But I have to do it because she owns me. I am her slave. I am a slave. I have no choice in this situation. I am a slave. But what he says is, I still cannot do it because I want to do his will. Okay. You have to understand verse 5 and 6. There are many, many religious people who are caught in verse 5 and 6 where they sacrifice and deny their self. That doesn't mean they do the will of God. He said, no, I will deny myself, but more than that, that is one side. The other side is, I have come to do your will. All that is written here, I will do. He said, no to self and yes to God in everything, every day. Okay. Therefore, there was two deaths Jesus partook of. And both are fundamental to our salvation. First, death to self, which led to obedience to his father. And finally, the death on the cross. The death on the cross took care of the penalty of sin. But the first death which he lived all the years of his life broke the power of sin. This is the full gospel. This is the full gospel. The first part of the gospel you see in Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God did by sending his own own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What did he do? He sent his son in the flesh. Then what did he do? In the flesh of his son, he condemned sin. How was sin condemned? He condemned sin in the flesh. He judged sin in the flesh of his son. That only makes the next part possible. Eight, yeah, eight four, I'm sorry. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. It should be fulfilled in us. And if only this much was there, then it is a cop-out, like what they say. Oh, we are, I'm already righteous in Christ Jesus. But scripture says, no, there is a walk. There is a walk. The righteousness of Christ is not fulfilled in those who walk in the flesh. The righteousness of Christ may be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh. Who not walk after the flesh. Okay. Understand how it works. We'll, we'll, we'll build on this. So now let's look at sin. Okay? 
Because that's the flesh, that's what flesh wants to do. Second Corinthians 15, 20, uh, 56. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. Okay, let me make it simple. Law gives power to sin. Sin gives power to death. Where there is no law, there is no sin. Where there is no law, there is no sin. So atheists do not want God who is the lawgiver. You understand? So we are having the whole of Western culture is becoming an atheistic nations, not religious. So in religious nations like India, you will see there is still this. You can't do this, you can't do this. Government also gets involved. There it is the other way. The government gets involved by saying, don't tell people what they can do and what they cannot do. You can see the two things happening. They are becoming atheist nations because they deny the existence of God. If there is no God, then there is no sin. If there is no sin, who are we to tell who can marry whom? If you're a man, you want to marry a man, that's your problem. It's not our job. You do whatever you want to do. We will change the laws. Atheistic societies which deny the existence of God, therefore there is no right or wrong. So the ones who say it is wrong becomes wrong in their eyes. So the laws are now turned against those who believe in God, not those who do not believe in God. Okay? But here, you need to understand, where there is no law, there is no sin. But the minute law comes, it gives power to sin. So in the Garden of Eden, only one law. If you eat of this particular tree, you will die. As soon as that law came in, Consciousness of sin is there. Meaning, don't eat of that tree. Adam must have come and told Eve, you know, you like this, you like this. That one, okay? Don't eat, okay? Don't eat. The law brought consciousness of sin. And the minute you give in to sin, death comes in. So the power of sin is the law and sin gives power to death. Okay? Jesus came in the same flesh. But what the scripture says, he put to death the works of the flesh through the spirit. That was the focus of his prayer life. Therefore he did not commit sin. Therefore death could not hold him. Why couldn't death hold him? Death has power only over those who have sinned. If you haven't sinned, Death has no power. Why does death have power over all of us? Because we have sinned. Jesus never sinned. So on the third day he had to rise up. Death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. That's what Romans chapter 1, 3 and 4 is talking about. Declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Before him, Nobody was resurrected from the dead. Everybody was resurrected from the dead. It was a temporary this thing. They came back in the old flesh and they still died. He never died. He just rose from the dead and lives forevermore. Why could death have no power over him? Because he never sinned. Okay. In Hebrews 4.15, we are trying to build this up. Okay. Sin, remember law, sin, death. In Hebrews 4.15, scripture says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. He says, I understand you. Why? Because I came in the same likeness of your flesh. I was tempted in all points. He was tempted as we are, are in are in are in all, but he never sinned. He never sinned. Okay. 
So temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Okay. James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. Look, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And verse 15, and when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Okay, desire, KJV will use the term lust. Okay, so temptation is from outside. Temptation is from? Outside. Lust is from within. The problem, why they put it? Desire. Okay, this is all connect, this lust is also connected with the self-life. We will, when you use the term, why they have changed is that from the old English meaning of lust, we have narrowed that meaning of lust to only to sexual desire. But that's not what it originally meant. Okay. Let's say, your husband provokes you. provokes you. And you want to lose it. It is a temptation aimed at you to lose your anger. To lose it. Okay? Let's look at it that way. Because this is a daily temptation. Your, your manager provokes you. Calls you good for nothing. It's directly aimed at your self-life. You want to react. You want to quit your job. You want to give it back to him or her nicely. All kind of things. Okay? This is the temptation. This is the very temptation Jesus is facing on the cross. Come down if you are the son of God. Come down. What are you talking about? You said you would build the temple. You said all this. You said, you said, come down if all that provocation. Come down. Okay? (coughs) Scripture says in verse 14, when you are tempted, he is drawn away by his own lust in his flesh. You are drawn by the lust to sin. Okay. And Jesus refused to be drawn away by his flesh. Because his flesh is putting to death the works of the flesh. Okay. So temptation is not sin. Temptation is not actually bad. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Okay, they will use the word temptation. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And James chapter 1, verse 12. Okay, they will again use the word temptation. 1, 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. When he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. He says, you will never receive the crown of life if you have not been approved in all your temptations. Why did Jesus receive the crown of life? The highest position ever. Because unlike us, he was tempted in all points and he was approved in every temptation. He never gave into it. Never gave into it. Never. He never. He was provoked. He was provoked. But he would never give into it. We are provoked, we give it. Give it. That's the way. If you look, I didn't give that um, this thing reference over there. Scripture says in First Peter chapter two twenty one. 
to this here unto where you call because Christ also suffered for he didn't suffer for himself he suffered for us he suffered for us he had to overcome temptation so that through him we would overcome temptation he was god he didn't have to go through any of this he suffered for us leaving us an example that we should follow his steps leaving an example that we should follow what is his steps the steps he showed us verse 22 who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth what does it mean he is absolutely innocent absolutely innocent unlike us we have done things to provoke others but he nothing next word who when he was reviled reviled not again he never reviled back never reviled back when he suffered he threatened not he didn't threaten anybody but committed himself to him that judges righteously that's the key that's what he's showing why is this important because today it's all about rights every agitation is about rights i am unfairly treated either going to have a mass agitation dharna strike shutdown bullets bombs everything is about rights but here is somebody who was absolutely innocent never sinned no guile in his mouth but when he was sinned again he refused to react nothing he refused to react because he is dead in the flesh he is putting to death the works of the flesh every day and god says it is to this we were called so there are great opportunities in temptations now that doesn't mean you need to go looking for them why because our prayer is lead me not into temptation because they will come looking for you every day they will come looking for you and when they come remember who we have who are we supposed to remember when temptations come each day hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 to 16 scripture says for the word of god is living powerful sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even okay all the way then and there is no creature hidden yeah come further down without sin Yeah, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of What is scripture saying? scripture says when you are tempted that is the time of your need and you will find grace if you go to him because he exactly understands what you're going through he says that's when he says you have the boldness to come because god is interested in your victory over temptation more than anything else he's interested he says come boldly come running come running come running this is the second part of the gospel That's why it's called the throne room of grace. He says, that is your time of need. He sympathizes. He was tempted in all points. He never sinned. But that also means he's extremely merciful and faithful. He understands what you're going through. And that hour of your temptation is your need. And your need is grace. Come boldly, receive it. And you will see you can overcome 
the temptations you face. And in case you fail, you can still go back to him and you will also find mercy. For where you have failed, receive grace so that next time the same temptation come, you don't have to fail. It's a, it's, it's, it's the most wonderful deal you can ever get in life. Imagine you join a school where the school says it doesn't matter how many times you fail, if you come back, you can keep on writing until you pass. We are there to help you through it. But not even the government allows it. Two, three times they said go. Find something, some other job. Don't waste our time. Not God. God. Mercy and grace, mercy and grace, mercy and grace. Okay. Being tempted in the new covenant is similar to Israel being led to their enemies in the promised land. Where are they led to? To their enemies. Joshua is leading them what? Every step Joshua leads them, he's leading them to a battle with their enemies. That's what temptation is. Every temptation God says, okay, you know what? I will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. But also remember, there is a way and there is grace and there is victory. The only reason Israel was defeated in the promised land was one, either because they had unconfessed sin or two, they did not believe in the power to give them victory. Unbelief or unconfessed sin. These were the only two reasons that brought the defeat of Israel. And God says that is the only two reasons that will bring our defeat when we face temptation. No other reason. Look how the psalmist puts both the old covenant and the new covenant put together. How he puts in Psalm 84 verses 5 to 7. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. When you are going on pilgrimage, your destination is very clear. What is that? Why do people go to Tirupati? Because they consider Tirupati to be the holiest of holy places in southern India. So their heart is set on that. Why do people go to Jerusalem? Because they consider it to be a holy place of among all the places as the most holy. So pilgrimage is very clear. Okay? Heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. They make it a spring. Why? Because they are focused on victory. The rain also covers it with pools. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. One is physical for Israel. The other is spiritual for us. You go strength to strength, appropriating the grace of God and the mercy of God. One day you will appear in Zion before God. You can be one of the overcomers. Zion. Zion is the highest point in Jerusalem. That is where you see the Lamb and all those who follow Him forever standing. You will appear before God in Zion. Not on earth, not in heaven, not even in Jerusalem, in Zion. So this is how it is put. How does Paul say it in the New Covenant? Second Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 to 6. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. He says if you can be led, you can be very sure you will be led in victory. God never leads His people in defeat. If you can be led, if you are willing to follow my spirit and my son, you will be always be led in victory over temptation. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Every place you are in. Different places, God wants different witnesses. Everywhere the knowledge of God is that. What is that? He is the captain of 10,000. He always wins. He never loses a battle against evil. Against sin, against temptation. For we are to God 
the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are being who are perishing. We are the fragrance of Christ to God. We smell of God, Christ. What is the smell of Christ? Victory. He was tempted in all points, but did not sin. God says, that's exactly where I want to take you through. In verse 16, to one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the other aroma of life leading to life. One said, looks at them and says, man, these people are, I just want them out of my sight. Because they remind me of my destiny, where I am headed towards. I am headed towards destruction and hell. If this is true, if this is true, then I am in big trouble. This, we smell of death to them. But to those who are inclined towards victory over sin, we are what? Aroma of life leading to more life. That's how Paul will put it together. This is the full gospel. That is why the apostle could actually write in Acts chapter 13, verse 32 to 33. 13. And we declare to you glad tidings, the promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So we are declaring to you glad tidings, which was made to our forefathers. Was fulfilled in? No. God has fulfilled this for us, their children. He has fulfilled this for our children. Now look at verses 37. And, uh, sorry, yeah, 37 to 39. But he whom God raised up so no corruption. Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. He saw no? He saw no corruption. Are you getting the stuff we have learned over the years? Second Peter, chapter 1. Verses 3 to four, 3 and 4. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. This is about us. Okay? By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Where is the corruption? Where is the corruption? The corruption is there in the world. How do I partake of that corruption? Through the lust that in me. He says, if you overcome him like my son did, his body never saw corruption. He was raised up the third day. Because he refused to partake of the corruption that is in the world through the lust that was in his flesh by putting to death the lust that is in his flesh every day. He said, my body will see no corruption. And on the third day he was raised up. Are we seeing it? Corruption is in the world. Lust is in me. Jesus came in the same flesh. Not that we are going to go in that order because we are already corrupted. But God says, I can redeem you through the blood of my son. I can redeem you. I can redeem you through the blood. Not that we will get the same body back. That's also not what I am saying. You have to understand the spiritual significance. What was that? The old covenant saints could never be freed from. From the law of Moses. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the Lord had said, law had said, thou shall not 
covet. But sin taking opportunity by commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire for apart from the law sin was dead. I was alive once without the law but when the commandment came sin revived and I died and the commandment which was to bring life I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by commandments deceived me and by it killed me. See, we need to understand this. In this, Paul is talking about a certain set of saints in the Old Testament. They looked at the law and they knew the law was good. But every day they were falling to keep the law. They broke the law. And they were miserable men because they loved God and they wanted to keep the whole law, but they could never keep it. Yet when they searched the scriptures, they found a set of people would arise to whom the spirit would given and would fulfill the law in their flesh. They would not fail. And when they failed, they would receive mercy like they could never receive because the blood of the lambs and the goats only cleansed you outwardly. It never cleansed you inside. They saw us and they rejoiced to see our day and said, Wow, God will have a set of people who will overcome sin. That's what they saw. It is to those people the call of the gospel is given. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Not by the problems in your life. Who are weary of falling and failing in sin. Who says, who will rescue me from this body of sin? And he says, praise be to God. Christ Jesus does. It is to whom the gospel goes. As long as a man or a woman has no issues with sin, he is not really saved. He cannot be saved. Because salvation is salvation from sin. Not just the penalty, but the power of sin. That's the gospel. Instead we have a false gospel which was preached to us. My father and my mother used to tell me as a, as a student, he says, you know, what's the most, second most difficult thing is to teach a child. But the most difficult thing to teach is after a child has been taught a subject wrong, is to correct him. You teach a child and teach him two twos are eight, two 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 threes are nine, two fives are, and he gets memorizes. Then to get him right, two twos are four, two threes are six. He struggles. Get a kid who doesn't know tables and tell him two twos are four, two. He learns it fast. The most difficult thing. We've been taught a wrong gospel, been preached a wrong gospel where there is no power over sin. You never have to obey. God loves you. Come, just believe, confess this thing and go to heaven. It is so difficult to change the mindset of people and pastors. Because we've been taught a lie. Like I said, Jesus did not have to come and die if forgiveness of sin was the only thing because you had it already in the Old Testament. Like I said, the greatest sign of it is David standing before Nathan and saying, I have sinned. When he says that simple statement, I have sinned, what all is involved in every, I have broken every law, the whole law I have broken, coveted, lied, cheated, deceived, murdered, adultery, you name it, I have done it all. God said, your sin is removed. It's removed. It's available in the Old Testament. Jesus did not come to die just so that we would have forgiveness for our sins. Which was outward. Which was outward. He came to give us forgiveness from our sin, which is inward. He cleanses our conscience from dead works. It's gone. It's no longer there. 
You look at an old covenant man and I will just read it for you. Matthew chapter 1. And verse 6. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Why is the sin mentioned there? Because old covenant only covered the outward thing. It never covered the inside thing. You are still under the law guilty. Still a reminder. You took another man's wife. Another man's wife. In the new covenant, if you have repented genuinely and confessed, there is no record. It's gone. It's no record. There is no record at all. It was sin in the flesh that God condemned in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. How did he condemn it? By Jesus living that death every day of his flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. He was condemning sin. That is exactly when Jesus taught and they couldn't understand and everybody got upset in John chapter 6, 53 to 56. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It was too much for them to take. What is this man now teaching? Has he gone crazy in his last days? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. That's exactly the spiritual meaning he meant. He says, in your flesh, if you live, you will die. You have to partake of my flesh in which I condemn the sin every day. That's the flesh through which you will have victory. So we are called the body of Christ. Jesus, you will have to partake of my flesh. And you will have to partake of my blood. My blood brings you forgiveness. No condemnation is removed. My flesh brings you victory over sin. Because sin was condemned in my flesh, not yours. Because I lived that life. Are we getting it? That is Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 21. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by how? The blood of Jesus. They never had boldness to enter the holy of holies. Even the high priest on the day of atonement, he did not have boldness to enter the holy of holies. Why? Because he was going with the blood of goats and bulls. But he says, you, any one of you, can come boldly to the holy of holies because you are coming. How? Through the blood of Jesus. Why? Because that blood removes any sign of sin from you inside. There is no mem- Not that there is no memory. There is no condemnation at all. The high priest went with condemnation. Oh Lord, have I repented? Is there anything which I don't know? Lord, if I go in, I am struck dead. Fear, trembling, with terror he went in. But he says the youngest believer in the new covenant can come with boldness if you have if you are coming through the blood of Jesus because the blood of Jesus not only cleanses you outwardly more than it cleanses you completely inside your conscience is clean come boldly to buy a new and a living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh on where sin was condemned through his flesh 
Are we getting the picture? How did he consecrate this way? He consecrated. That is what Philippians 2 is talking about. How did he consecrate his way? Who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, what does it mean? We have read it so many times that we become familiar with passages. Mary, do not be familiar with passages. Familiar. It's good to be familiar. You know, familiar has different connotations in English. Don't get familiar with the word of God. Then we lose what God is trying to speak to us. What does that word, verse 8 mean? Obedient to the humbled, humbled, humbled to the point of death, even death on the cross. Meaning, this was the lowest, if you look at the time, this was the lowest a man could be, could go. If you want to condemn a man to the lowest position in humanity, this was as low as you could send him. Death and death on a cross. That's the lowest you could go. But he was not sent by man. He humbled himself to that position. That's the lowest you could go. God sent him there and he was obedient to the will of God. And the work of Christ was done there. In his humility and obedience, all sin in flesh was put to death. What does it mean? If the fall of man came through disobedience and pride, the redemption of man back into the presence of God comes through obedience and humility. How did we lose being in the presence of God? Through disobedience and pride. And how do we get back into the presence of God? Through obedience and humility. And I'm telling you, it's impossible to get people to believe in the gospel when they have not gone, grown tired of sin. Paul could declare in Philippians 3.6 Philippians 3.6 Concerning zeal, okay, leave that. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Blameless. He could say, what does that mean? Outwardly. Inwardly? Inwardly, no. Hebrews 9.13 and Hebrews 10.4. For it, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heap sprinkling of the sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Next one. For it is not possible the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Could never. Could never take away sins. Could never take away sins. It, had, it didn't have the power to take away sins. Meaning, outwardly, he says, according to the law, blameless. Inwardly, the struggle with sin every day. Every day. No peace inside this man. Zealous man. Outwardly, perfect according to the law. Inwardly, nothing. Until he saw 
Stephen die. He was there when Stephen was dying. And he heard the voices of Stephen. And he looked at him. And he heard him saying, Father, do not lay this sin upon them. And he realized, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. Because he's exactly what my inside is longing for. Exactly. And all it took was him to meet Jesus on the way. And he was ready. The problem is nearly everyone you meet in Christendom associates obedience with the law and the gospel with the gift. The true gospel begins with the gift and leads us into more and more obedience. If we don't, we have missed the gospel. We have missed the gospel. This is the great deception of the last days. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, For we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved, by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit, and belief in truth. There's one church he was always gung-ho about. That was the Thessalonian church. The other was Berean church, but sadly there is no epistle to the church in Berea. Otherwise you would have heard even more great words about that church. Because he said Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. But he was very happy with this church because they understood the gospel. And they practically demonstrated the power of the gospel. To which he called you by our gospel. For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus. What is the call of gospel? That one day you may obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. What is the glory of Jesus Christ? He came in the likeness of man in the flesh, flesh and blood. He was tempted in all points and he did not sin. He humbled himself, obedient to death, death on the cross and the father lifted him to the highest place. He says that's the glory of Lord Jesus Christ. That's the call and that is the salvation. You've been chosen for salvation through the sanctification by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. This is what you can have, he says. Thessalonican church, I feel really good about you. Really, really good about you. We are called to this. And Bible multitudes on the other hand perish. Same letter, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. You receive the belief of truth. Others don't receive the love of the truth. You getting the picture? That's why scripture says in John 1, 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in John 16, 13, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. And in Hebrews 10, 29, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. The blood. Why? The blood of Jesus. The blood of goats and bulls could only sanctify you outside. The blood of Jesus sanctify you. You consider it a common thing. And has insulted the spirit of? How do you do that? How do you do that? You know how that happens? Read verse 9. Yeah, verse 26. 
if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth. Willfully after the knowledge of truth. This is the whole thing. Okay. He says, most people don't feel bad, okay? Most people in Christendom are not sinning willfully because they did not have the knowledge of truth. They did not know that through the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you could actually overcome sin. So they were not willfully. They were new covenant people living in the old covenant. So they fell, asked for forgiveness, fell, asked for forgiveness. That's how Jesus was not Melchizedek for them. He was more like Aaron. But now you have the truth. You understand the truth. Now you understand the truth. That doesn't mean truth has become a part of you. Okay, truth has to become a part. But you understand the truth. Hey, I don't have to fall in the same sin again. Why? Because the blood of Jesus once removes it from my conscience. I am no longer condemned. Two, the spirit of grace gives me power over sin. That's what 29 is talking about. The blood. Verse 29, the one which we looked at, yes. How much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, countered the blood of the covenant by which he sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? You know, that's exactly what they preach against this. God understands. Okay, understand. That's what God is talking about. So the call of God in the gospel is to walk in the spirit. Romans 8.1 That is the gospel. There is there no for condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Only they have no condemnation. See, walking in the spirit, there is no condemnation. The spirit never condemns. And the blood removes condemnation. Those who are walking in the spirit, there is no condemnation. Absolutely. And Galatians 5.16 says, it says, then I say, Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Go read Galatians 5.19-22 to understand. Because the problem is when we use this term lust. Today it's narrowed down to sexual temptations. But that's not. Lust is everything. It covers every spectrum of life. And God says you may be overcoming something that looks big in your eyes. But... You are not overcoming something else which you have made small, which is still big in my eyes. Like if you look in the Old Testament and the the old teachings of the ancient fathers, when you talk about cardinal sins, one of the cardinal sins was gluttony. When was the last time you heard anybody preach about it? Gluttony doesn't mean eat too much. It means like their fascination is for different kinds of food. It's about food. It's like the Canara Bank's you know, logos, living to serve, serving to live. It's living to eat, eating to live. See, in our own hearts, in our own hearts, we have, we have made some sins small and some sins big. But God says all sins are the same. If you break one part of the law under the law, you have broken the whole law. It didn't mean, it didn't matter which law, which part. But God says, my grace is to overcome. So if you want to see the lust of the flesh, you read Galatians. Okay, so it, ultimately it comes down to this. 
an exchange of self-will and the exchange of the self-will on the cross for the will of God. The power of self for the power of spirit. Mary, power of the spirit. My will or God's will. First we have to decide that. My will or God's will. Once we have decided that, that's not enough. Second thing you have to decide, my power or his power. It's not enough to decide, okay, Lord, I want to do your will and then never seek his power. Then we can try to fulfill God's will in the power of the flesh. My will or his will. My power or God's power. And Jesus came to show true liberty comes only when creation submits to the will of the creator. And the creator became part of creation by becoming coming in the likeness of flesh to show us what liberty comes. And when he came in the flesh, scripture says in First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, what does scripture say? I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What does Jesus say? You have given me a body. You have given me, you have prepared a what happened to his head? Why does he say only a body? Because he says, you are my head. Father, you are my head. And you have given me a body. Your body does everything according to what your head directs. That's what headship means. That's what headship means. That's what headship means. Every Christ said, head of Christ is God. We are not getting into the rest, but you got the message, right? What it means there? That's what men are asked to. The whole issue comes is not over headship. This is true. This is God's order. But the problem is men never come under the headship of Christ and then they try to see the woman comes under his headship and what you have is abuse. You have is abuse. Then you have women who never come under the headship of man. What you have is tribulation. But God says, this is the order. This is my order. Think about an order for a man who is absolutely under the headship of Jesus Christ. As Jesus is absolutely under the headship of the Father. And the woman who is absolutely under the headship of that man. That's exactly how eternity is going to be. No, there is no marriage over there. But I am saying, the headship of the Father will be over everybody because the Son showed the way. What does headship mean? Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Okay? This is where Israel is told in the physical, look to your father Abraham and look to your mother Sarah. And James will say, Abraham's faith was perfected. When? When he took his son and tied him on the altar because he was telling God very clearly, Christ, you are my head. This is my self-life, my flesh life. Here I tie. Isaac was telling very clearly, Father, you are my head. I will not lift a single finger. Tie life. Tie me onto the altar. I will not do anything. I come under your headship. Father says, I come under your headship. And right there in the home, Sarah says, My Lord, take the son, offer him. I come under your headship. All three in one line with God. And God says, You are the ones everybody will look towards one day. 
That's why he's chosen as the father of nations. One line. Father, mother, son, Christ. Everybody in one line. God says, that's it. You can never lose. He says, take your son. I am Jehovah Jireh. You will know me as the source of everything. When you come in that line. This is what we fight inside. This is the fight we fight every day. Yet the gospel sets you free. It liberates you. It's a gospel of freedom. It's a gospel of liberty. Otherwise, we are trampling upon the Son of God and the blood of Christ and insulting the Spirit of grace by making the new covenant like the old covenant. Man, shall we pray? Father, this evening, I release the words we have heard into thy hands, though we are few, yet I know, Lord, over the weeks, in the months, there will be many, many who will hear, who been searching, haven't yet found. When they hear, they will know. This is what is true. And I pray each one of us will learn each day to experience the liberty that you bring in our lives. That's why the Spirit is given. That's why your sons, in your son's flesh, sin was condemned. That's why the blood of Jesus cleanses us inside and outside. The Spirit of grace enables us to overcome. Teach us. Help us. To come boldly, confidently to the throne room of grace. Not for physical needs, but truly, Father, to resist those temptations. To overcome those temptations that keeps us away from experiencing the righteousness of Christ. Because you said in your word, if we seek that righteousness with all our heart, all these things we ask will be added into our lives. Help us not to invert the gospel, but to see the gospel as it truly is a God. The power of God unto salvation. As your servant priest 2,000 years ago, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile. It is the power of God. Help us to experience that power each day, O oh Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father. As we go, thank you for protecting us through this day from the heat. We know, Lord, you will keep us through the days that are ahead. Because it's to you that we look. Our Redeemer, our hope, our everything. Thank you, Father, thank you. Help us to stay hidden in you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.